I have had over the last, oh, I don't know, four or five years, many requests from different elders in Kenya for uh, us to become more involved with them, to come visit them, and so on. And there are so many uh, fraudulent situations coming out of Kenya and Ghana, uh, particularly Nigeria, whether it be email or whether it be religious or what. And one of the things they do is they'll find any church uh, website and they'll study it enough to learn a few things that that, that church believes and then they'll start writing them uh, and, and saying the right things and then after three or four contacts they'll start asking for donations and money. And I don't fault them entirely for that in a way because the people are in grinding poverty and they're looking for any way to get some kind of help. So I can understand how these things respond and so on, but at the same time I want to be sure before we try to help anyone or to assist them or to join up with them or have them join up with us that I feel confident that they truly are called of God and are part of His church. Uh, we don't want to start a missionary uh, movement for Baptists, you know, or for people who are nominally a little bit acquainted. So it's been hard to separate the wheat from the chaff, in a sense, and who really uh, is sincere in what they're doing and who might not be. Uh, I did, for a while... I pondered these things, and some of them I told, we don't really have the capability of doing much with you or for you, and recommended to them that they might get in touch with United, who have a local ministry over there. And I didn't know at what level they might be in terms of understanding the truth and how much background they've had with the church. Uh, and that they might be on a spiritual level where United might be of value and help to help them with the basics and so on. Uh, so uh, that was my recommendation to them. I don't know whether I did anyone wrong or not. It was something that was very, very hard to discern and to work out and to decide what to do with them. But this one fellow, uh, and I have corresponded over quite some time, probably goes back, I'd say, close to a year now. And I kept trying to get out of him information uh, about what he did understand. And they don't have computers like we do either. They have to go to an internet cafe, and it's very expensive for them to use a computer. So he'd write me back these little blurbs, and I, I was having trouble putting the whole story together. And he promised me, I don't know, two or three months ago, that he would send me a long letter. And I told Marla about that, and uh, lo and behold, a couple days ago, this email showed up. And I told Marla that I'd heard from him, and she says, well, I just thought of him yesterday. I says, yeah, I was clearing out some stuff on my computer, and I thought of him yesterday, too. And then this email came. I want to read it to you and see what you think. His name is Brad O'Ching. He says, and, and remember, uh, English is a secondary or 
or a third language even for them over there. Uh, he, he does a pretty good job, but there's, there are a few things in here that, uh, that indicate that it is rudimentary in that sense. So pardon the, the lack of grammar once in a while here and there. I don't hold that against him. I think he's doing quite well. Uh, to be able to put together a letter like this. But many of the people there do speak English. It's like uh, Europe where they know three or four languages, most of them. And the same is true uh, in these countries of Africa. Anyway, he says, Dear Elder Darrell, Greetings once more from East Africa. I hope this letter finds you and all the brethren, including your family, in a good health. I said that I was to write to you a long letter. Here is the letter. Please kindly study it keenly, and please respond, thanks. I know you do not know me. I, too, do not know you, but through having same belief in Christ, we may be one that, it, that is through abiding in Christ as our Savior. I don't know if you've ever been to Africa. Well, it may be very difficult to know of something you haven't seen face to face. Certainly true on that. Let me first open myself and introduce myself to you for the second time, since that would help you know me to an extent. I am Braddox Oma Oching. I have visited the USA during the year 2005 and 2007, respectively. Before my visit to the USA, I was a member of the Living Church of God, but due to what I call the author of the devil that is confusion which contributed to separation of members both in Kenya and the United States. I and some other 13 members moved and joined Church of God in Truth. Uh, that's Jim Russell. This is because we were only interested in truth and nothing more. We intended to learn, know, and walk in truth as Christ walked. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John fourteen six. Remember the Bible says we do to the Father through Christ, not through pastors or deacons. Christ himself is the head of the church, not us. After my visit from the USA in the year 2008, we kept the Feast of Tabernacles at a place called Nyandiwa in Gwasi province in Kenya together with other two brethren from the United States. So apparently two men, as we'll see, moved over there from here. This brought another separation because the elder of the Church of God in Truth never wanted our two brothers, that's spiritual brothers, church brothers, to move to Kenya and keep the feast with us because he knew this could give a clear picture to the members who had been giving in some help to the brethren, yet it was not reaching the brethren here. So, those two, when they got over there, reported that they, perhaps, and others had been sending financial aid to Kenya, but it never got to the brethren. Now, that's the history of charities in the world, but apparently so in the church. Uh, after the feast, Mr. Bill Goff, who is now the elder to the Voice in the Wilderness Church of God, I hadn't heard of that one, wrote his report over his observation on the people of Kenya and Tanzania. He received a response from Church of God and Truth that Africans are not working and therefore they should not eat. Which is not really true, question mark. We do work a lot, and I think we even work more than the USA brethren do. 
But the only problem is that we live in countries where there is poor governance, governance and all our hard work is not helping us at all. They are very, very poor, even though they work. In Kenya, I think about 75% of the people work in the agricultural field, and uh, they don't make much money. They barely survive, and some don't survive. Anyway, let's see. But the only... Pro- oh, we read about the poor governance, and it's not helping to work. He disfellowshipped my dad, who was the pastor in Kenya, and Mr. Bill, I assume that's Bill Goff he talked about earlier, of the United States, and said that he had nothing to do with the brethren from Africa. He then realized that this was not godly, not, not the right attitude to have, I guess he means, and asked me to represent the Church of God in Truth in East Africa, of which I have served as a representative for two years and helped in organizing the Feast of Tabernacle, and also meeting the brethren who has contacted the headquarters in the United States. I then came to ask him to try and visit the brethren here, too, since that would help him know us more, but this is the response I received. We shall meet in God's kingdom to come. Or be warmed and filled, I guess. But what does the book of Jeremiah tell us? Woe be to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the eternal God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, says the eternal. He says, and you may also have a look at verses 3 and 5. That was 1 through 2. I think I'll turn back there and read that since he referenced it but didn't quote it. Uh, because it is, I think, uh, applicable here. Jeremiah 23, scripture we're, I'm sure, all quite familiar with. But he had just read 1 and 2. Here are 3 through 5. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and will bring them again to their foals, And they shall be fruitful and increase. So he's not talking here about uh, necessarily physical Israel, but of the church, I think, in this particular case. He keeps it in a religious tone. And they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, says the Eternal. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will raise up to David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. The righteous branch here, I think, uh, in many, many references in the prophecies, is referring to the Zerubbabel of Zechariah 4. And shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Uh, I won't read more. That's what he quoted. I'll have a little more to say about this later on. He continues, The love of God, which Christ said is the greatest commandment, is not in him. Now, this is his judgment. I'm just reading it. And therefore, he is not worth leading God's people. This is not a letter of asking any help or seeking any assistance from you. This is to kindly as you to allow us fellowship with you together under your leadership through Christ. 
We are a group of 103 members, both Kenya and Tanzania. We would wish and love to work with you together in the work of him who sent us, that is, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have studied at length through the website, our website, and I have come to fully know that you are truly working out in truth, and that is what we should all do, because the time is at hand and we have no more time to waste. I have passed the message to all the brethren during the Feast of Tabernacles, and they asked me to consult with you. But all in all, would you please make an arrangement and visit us, and we discuss face-to-face, because that will help us to know more and learn more from each other. And then he quotes Isaiah 34, 1 and 2. Come near, you, all nations, to hear and hearken, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein the world, and all things that come forth of it. Thanks in advance for your positive response. Sincerely, Braddock So Ching. Now, what do you think? I responded to him last night, and I think I'll read this to you. I don't have the same dilemma that I was explaining to you earlier. Uh, I think that we're dealing with someone here who definitely has a history with the church and gave enough personal experience that uh, it deserves uh, a legitimate answer. Dear Brad, thank you so much for your letter. The details you gave have convinced, convinced me of your background in the Church of God and your sincerity in truly seeking out others who wish to wholeheartedly obey our Creator in heaven. I agree that we are very near the cataclysmic end-time events, and there is not time to waste whatsoever. I have been to Africa many times at administrating the congregations of Church of the Great God when I was still with them. I left CGG in the year 2000 due to feeling we could no longer follow the Jewish-Hebrew-calculated calendar. Since then, we have been an independent congregation and following the calendar in the heavens. Jim Russell has a better system than most, but I feel we have come to understand some things about the calendar that go beyond his understanding. It helps that you already have an understanding that the Jews are in error. We did maintain a congregation in South Africa for a few years, but when we came to understand the truth about the Passover, we lost that congregation and therefore stopped having a Feast of Tabernacles in Africa. That is the main reason I wished you to study the Passover paper very carefully, as it does depart from what we thought we knew in Worldwide Church of God. As a result of your letter, I will positively try to work things out to be able to visit with you, hopefully in the near future. I truly enjoyed the 8 to 10 visits to South Africa and a few other countries where we had brethren, though I never visited Kenya or Tanzania. I do look forward to meeting with you and the brethren there. When is a good time that might not interfere with your scheduling and give enough lead time to accommodate as many people as possible? There are other elders in Kenya who have contacted me over the past few years, and it was difficult to grasp their level of understanding, and I discussed that with him earlier as well. As a result, I recommended some of them contact United. I can see that you are already beyond United and need more. Where, how are they going to go to living anymore? How are they going to go to United or any of those who do not understand the calendar? Uh, 
they're not keeping God's holy days when God said. And that is important. Is it important to keep the Sabbath on the day he says? Well, yes it is. How about the holy days? We need to get as close to God's calendar as we possibly can. And we cannot depend upon the Jews as we know. So, so I, I said, you're already beyond United and need more. I can't recommend they go to United, because then they'll go right back to the Hebrew calendar. Uh, perhaps some of the others were beyond United as well, and would also like to meet with us if it can be arranged far enough ahead of time. I have some names in my email archives, which I will look up and send to you in case you might know some of them. Perhaps your study on our site has educated you to understand that we have made some doctrinal changes over the past few years. I am very careful about that, as I do believe Herbert Armstrong had very good understanding of the ways and plan of God. However, he did not understand the errors in the calendar, among a few other things. We are trying to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, yet being very careful not to lose the valuable things we already learned through Worldwide Church of God. My parents came into the church in 1953 when I was age nine, so I have a deep regard and respect for what I learned from my youth and only change what we feel we can definitely prove from Scripture. God's Word, properly understood, is the final authority. Please pass along our love and concern for the brethren there. I will ask everyone to be praying for all of you in these trying times and for a successful and rewarding trip to visit with you. So, uh, I wrote that last night and... I'll write him some more about itinerary and how long it'll take and how many places we need to go in both Kenya and Tanzania to see whomever we need to see. But it sounds like that they are a valid uh, group that are truly looking for truth and have moved beyond some of the things that uh, worldwide did not know and that some of the churches today that they have been involved with did not know either. And he told me before that he had studied the Passover paper and agreed with it. So, I feel very confident now. Do you? Does this make sense? I, uh, I do feel, at this point, compelled, obligated, and even joyful about the possibility of meeting with those people. Uh, and we'll see how many there are and how many groups and the different elders that I've talked to. And, and he may know some of them if they've been connected truly with the church. And I'll leave it to his wisdom as to whom to contact and who not to, uh, because he seems to be on top of it. Now, I have felt over time that with what we understand about prophecy... And that God is going to gather his people, as Haggai says so very clearly, and Isaiah and other places do back up, that God will gather his tenth. It even mentions there in Zechariah 2, that he will have his portion, and he will gather them. Uh, his portion, clearly through the Bible, is 10%. So that is about the number that are going to be gathered here at the end time into one place. Now, everyone else, it seems, is going out trying to proselyte and trying to get new members and so on because they think Herbert Armstrong did not finish his work and therefore they need to. 
or that they are Elisha instead of Elisha or whatever they use to determine that they need to go do that. On the other hand, with what we have understood, I have not felt that is our calling. Uh, my calling, as I understood it from the very beginning, very clearly, was that we were to prepare a place for people to gather when the time was to come. And we were to lead in going to and doing that. Now, as far as I know, we have pretty much completed this community. And I don't know next what to do unless we're to try to provide large, a large area for a lot of people, but we don't have the finances or the personnel to do that. So I don't think that that is necessary. Besides that, it says he's going to plant seven trees or churches in the wilderness and that they will be in villages, and I don't know exactly where those need to be. I suspect that they will be around where we feel Zion, Jerusalem is. And this whole area can qualify there. But I suspect around, if we were to do some building there, uh, around Jerusalem itself. And I have evidence now, I think, from Scripture of who the Mormons essentially consist of. And the Scripture is very clear that they will be taken into captivity and killed and so on, just like the rest of the nation. And therefore will vacate this area. And it will be given to God's people. And he says their stores will be laid up for us. So, until that time comes, we can't much move forward. Now, I've received these requests before, and I wondered, should I be running over the face of the earth, checking all these things out? There was a, a group in Madras, India, a few years ago as well who were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, and they sent me pictures with Feast of Tabernacles all written up, and they were dressed in their uh, very colorful uh, dress-up wear for the feast. And I debated going over there, and then I thought of these scriptures and thought, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be getting this done and ready, and not building a church around the world because the church is supposed to come to the place where God gathers them for specific reasons. Now I'm, in a sense, in a quandary again uh, in taking the time, the resources, and so on to go to Africa. And yet, to me, this is a very compelling situation where I believe these people truly are uh, being led of God and have open minds to understand some new truths that they have not gotten before, so I feel that I should go. Now that leads me to another thought, and that is this. We must be getting fairly near the time for God to begin gathering from all over the world if we're beginning to get this kind of sincere request. Because I don't think that he has prepared us to do a worldwide work. I don't think that is our purpose. I think our work is going to basically be here, and the world will come to us. Now let's go back a little bit and understand the history of the end-time church. I, I, perhaps we do, but I always have to bear in mind 
that some of you who are here, adult already, never saw, never heard Herbert Armstrong, never really knew the Worldwide Church of God, but because of the time you were born and got old enough to say more than Dada and Mama, uh, the church was basically gone. And perhaps some of us need to also look at it, who may have been in the church a long time, and a little bit of a review of the history, and therefore understand a little better where we are today. Now, you, some of you have read the autobiography, and I won't keep referring. I'll just kind of explain what I have to say. But Herbert Armstrong was a businessman in Chicago and moved to the Oregon area and started over. And his wife began to be called to understand the Sabbath and some elements of the truth back in 1926. Now, he began to go out. He was involved with the Seventh-day Church of God. They were Sabbath-keeping, but they didn't keep the holy days. They were limited understanding, and he came upon, to look upon them as the Sardis era, which in some, to some degree may be true, although I think all seven church eras exist today, uh, because they observe one another. And some have even the names that are given in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. But he began to understand some things that caused him to feel he had to separate from the Seventh-day Church of God. It still exists, by the way. The headquarters, I think, are in Denver at this point. And he, go, he began to go out and to have little evangelical campaigns, tent meetings and rented halls and that type of thing. And people were having their minds opened, and they became receptive to the things that he had to say, okay? But then he would move on to another group in another town around Oregon. And as he looked in his rearview mirror, he would see that the little groups that had gathered fell apart because he was the only minister and he could not take care of them all and be there every week so they just sort of came apart at the seams and this was very perplexing <laughs> you know it, it can be very discouraging you go out and you spend all that time uh, preaching, speaking, teaching, visiting with people and they say, yes, yes, and then you go away, and they, before long, say, no, no. Uh, so he began to wonder, what do I do? And something compelled him to go down to Los Angeles. And he began looking about in Pasadena, because he had come up with the idea of establishing a college. And I don't remember the detail of why he didn't feel he wanted to do that in Oregon, but he felt Southern California would be a better place to do it. I think that was with God's direction, definitely, knowing what I know today. But his idea was to establish a college so that he might train men to be in the ministry, and then as little churches came up, they would have pastors to take care of them. So he began Ambassador College in 1947 in Pasadena. 
He was training young men. It would have been better, really, had he had 40, 50-year-old men to train. There were few of those. But it was a college, and you don't have a college necessarily for men of that age. Younger men who are more resilient, uh, quicker minds in some respects, and so on, but immature as well, but eager and zealous. So he began to turn men out of there that he sent on baptizing tours and, and began to build churches across the nation, and we know that then finally grew to around the world. And I do believe that had God's direction. It had its problems because those young guys didn't have much life experience. And in some cases, they didn't even have much experience with the church. They may have only known a little bit about it, came to college, and they were exposed to the truth for four years. And then needed to go out and be able to teach that truth to people who were new. Now they knew more than the new people, so at least they could teach some. But their lack of life experience, and I include myself in that, uh, made it very difficult. Uh, well, personally, they intended, when I graduated, barely turned 22, to ordain me as a preaching elder and send me out to North Dakota to tell 70 and 80-year-old farmers how to live. Now, that's an oxymoron in itself. Uh, they wised up and knew that I needed some seasoning and to have my head uh, shrunk a bit. So they sent me to Florida as a local elder instead and had somebody who was of German extraction beat on me for two or three years, which at the time did not feel good, but which I'm positive did some good. But that's just my story. And they've... They rarely ordained anybody that young. They sent them out first as assistants, but still in all, uh, that life experience simply wasn't there. So it had its difficulties, and everybody has their war stories about the ministry out of Pasadena, okay? But still in all, that work under Herbert Armstrong was used to call, I think, many people to a knowledge of the truth. And it spread not only from this land of Ephraim here, but around the world. And what I am dealing with in this letter I read to you is from people who came in under that system and were converted, and then when the church broke up, they went from group to group, as is customary these days, trying to find some answers and finding precious few answers. Now let's understand Mr. Armstrong's approach. He built Ambassador College not to teach people how to make a living. The great preponderance of schools across the nation and around the world are there for one sole purpose, and that is to teach people how to make money, to make a living, to give them a skill in a particular field, whatever it might be. But we look at the world as we see it today, and we see a world that knows how to make a living, but they make a mess out of living. And that's what he saw. He saw crime, divorce, fraud, lying, stealing, cheating, everything that goes on in the world out there, and it's gotten worse and worse as the decades have gone by. 
So his mind and thought process was, I want to teach people how they should live, what their attitude should be in life, what their code of conduct should be in life, what makes a successful human being in the way that they live. Now, he preached that far and wide, and he certainly preached it to the college students. But we were there to learn how to live. We could learn how to make a living somewhere else. Then he anticipated that those people getting that training, be they young men or women, would go out into the churches as they were being formed, and that they, as a team, together, could by example and by teaching, show people how a human being should operate his life. And that had mixed results. And in fact, today, we still struggle, do we not, with living properly and getting it right. It's very, very difficult for all of us as human beings because our nature is contrary. But understand that he went from preaching fairly strongly. I can remember as far back as probably 1951, later 52, uh, when we would tune in to XELO or XEG down in Mexico and try to hear the broadcast. And it would come in very spotty and you had to hold your head in the radio just right or go sit in the car and try to keep fiddling with the knobs to get the thing to come in. Some of you did that. But he preached pretty strongly, as I recall, from some of Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the nation and how it was going to go into captivity and so on, way back then. And then he got away from that. And I think with God's direction and a good reason, because what is in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel that needs to be preached to the world is still yet to come. But he adopted a friendlier version, and it was a calling work. I've touched on that before, where he gave the thing of not keep the law, which is the commandments, and this is the way of love, but he used the give and get method, saying that we need to learn to live a life of giving, of serving, of helping, not of grasping and greediness and getting, which is the way of the world, dog eat dog and so on. So that is the message he took, and through Osama Goto and Stan Rader, we found out later uh, he was able to present that message to kings, to leaders, to presidents of many nations. Uh, he had to pay to go there in many cases. It was not by invitation. That disillusioned a lot of people when they found out, well, he had to pay to go to dinner with the king of Belgium or queen uh, of Thailand or wherever he might be at the time. And I, it bothered me a little bit when I began to find that out. Well, he's having to pay his way in. That's like going to the movies, you know. Yeah, you can get in if you pay your dollars. Uh, but that's okay. We had to pay for radio and TV, did we not, to broadcast a message to the world? 
So if we had to give a gift of Waterford Crystal or pay some money under the table to get to give this message to the king, so what? The message was delivered. Now God was setting something up there. He was having Herbert Armstrong meet with those people to teach them that there is a right way to live. And they had opportunity then to accept that and quit the greedy, grasping, selfish way that they were all living. And it was delivered in a kind and very gentle and loving manner. But still in all, it was given. Now that was a witness that went by radio and television to the, it blanketed this nation and Canada and England and a few other places and was heard almost round the world. A message of give, not get. Now, did the world listen? Did they get the point? Did they change anything? Absolutely not. Nothing. They put their Waterford crystal back on a shelf somewhere and let it grow dust and went on about life as usual. But they were told. Now, we face a situation where what happens next? What happens when you are told and you do not perform? Where does God go next? I want to tie this together with not only the past, the history of the church in this age, and what Herbert Armstrong was commissioned to do. I do not believe he was commissioned to go to the world and preach the gospel as a witness, and then the end would come, as Matthew twenty four fourteen says. He thought that was his commission, but what amount of preaching he did, he then died, and the end of the age did not come. So obviously, he did not fulfill that, even though many today cling to the idea that he was the Elijah to come. For one thing, he never restored everything, did he? He said Elijah would restore all things there at the end of the book of Malachi. Well, I know a lot of things he didn't restore. Some things we have restored ourselves even here. And there are other people and other groups around the world who have restored some other things that we may not even know about yet. So he did not know it all, nor did he restore it all. That being the case, and he died and the end did not come, he could not have been the Elijah to come. But he was used of God to do a gentle calling work. And many, many people were called into the church, and it became larger. And then, when he died, the process was reversed. It began to fall apart. And we understand, I think, because of Laodiceanism, because we did not have the attitudes in the church that we ought to have had, and we were thought we were rich and increased with goods and had everything we needed to know, wasn't that we were lazy, we were doing a very vital and very exciting end-time work. 
laziness does not necessarily equate to Laodiceanism. Laodiceanism in Revelation 3 is when you think you know it all, when you think you're okay, you have nothing you need to learn or change because you're a Philadelphian, it automatically makes you a Laodicean because you do not realize you are naked and blind to what you need to do. We do have some churches, big ones even, the end time here, who are very poorly named. And in fact, some of them are just the opposite of what they named themselves. I won't go into that. I don't want to throw rocks at anybody in particular. We have enough things we need to change ourselves. So poking uh, at them won't help us at all. We need to change what we need to change. So that aside, the church came apart. Now, what happens next? I think you already know at least part of the answer to that, but I want to review it a little bit. Uh, I came to see that Haggai and Zechariah were something that have to be fulfilled here in the end time. And in fact, in 1981, when I was in a personal meeting with Herbert Armstrong, he said, I am Zerubbabel. And I looked at him and thought, well, oh, okay. So I went home and began to review Haggai and Zechariah. And in fact, I gave a sermon at that time. I, I, I ran across that tape some year, two or three years ago, in which I preached that. And I thought that he and his son fit that pretty well, that he was Zerubbabel and his son was the filthy Joshua uh, because of some of his activities and approaches. And I think that to a degree that was true and is to this day because he did build a church of God or temple of God. He built a fine building and dedicated it to the name of God and built a spiritual organism, the church, as well. But it, as I came to see years later, was the former temple and that a latter temple has yet to be built, both a spiritual organism and I think probably a physical building again, even as Herbert Armstrong did, but in a different place and with a different configuration. So I think that the type was certainly there, but it came apart. Now God says that there will be a latter temple and that it will come within the same time frame as the former, and that there will be some old men around who can remember the glory of the one against the glory of the new and be able to compare. And Haggai says that the latter will be much greater, spiritually speaking, than the former. In other words, God was not happy with our level of spirituality and worldwide church of God, so he spewed us out of his mouth. He expects us to repent and do better than what we, all of us, did in Worldwide Church of God. We have to come to a greater level of spiritual growth than what we had then. Now, some of you were not there then, but I'm speaking to you gray or bald-headed ones, including myself. I have to do better than I did then. And time is a-wasting. We're almost to the time that there will not be time. 
And we have to be ready to do what needs to be done. Now, the latter temple has to be the final fulfillment of Zechariah 1 through 6 and on. It has to embody the two witnesses, and they have a different work than Herbert Armstrong had. Herbert Armstrong was there to call many people into the church, and the scripture itself says, many are called, few are chosen. And out of the many who were in the church, through this separation and puking out, some will repent, some will be faithful, some will recognize their spiritual poverty and begin to change and grow and overcome. God has told us very clearly in Haggai and other scriptures that he will then gather those people together in one place and they will be a light on a hill that cannot be hid. They will be, in the end time, the church of God that the whole world can see. And the message will change. The message will be from the leadership that goes around the world that there is a group of people who have actually learned how to live. They will have learned, as Matthew 4, 4 says, to live by every word of God. They will have learned that Christ came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10.10. 10. They will have begun to keep the commandments of God in spirit and in truth, and they will learn to live abundantly. And it says there in Haggai 2 verse 9 that, they will, that he will in that place, or this place, he said, bring peace. Now, there essentially is no peace in the church of God today. And we need more peace right here among ourselves. Because we fight and argue and bicker and stab each other in the back, saying we love one another as we stick the knife in. Way too much. So even yet today, we have not learned to live the way we need to in a fullness of what God intended. Now he does tell us, back in Isaiah, about 43, that he is going to use a group of people at the end, about the time that his temple is to be built. Uh, let's see, I'll pick it up here. Which one do I want first? Well, this one will do. Isaiah 43. Verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. Now, I just read you a letter from some people who want help. They want to be close. But I do not believe, based on Scripture, that this last work in the end time that God causes to be done will be a matter of worldwide evangelism that it will be of reestablishing churches all around the world, because right here, and Brad even quoted a scripture similar to this one that I am now reading. 
I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. I may go visit them, but I don't think we're going to have a great work in East Africa or anywhere else. I think God is going to begin to gather people from around the world because that's what he says he's going to do next. Even everyone that is called by my name, that would be those who know the true God. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Then he goes down to say in verse 10, You are my witnesses, says the Eternal. Those called by his name that he gathers together is the context here. They are his witnesses. The few that are chosen to do this. God's 10% of those who were called under Herbert Armstrong, essentially. His portion, his 10%, his tithe. There again, that's why tithe is so important in the plan of God. Is that he will save his tenth of the people. It has great and very deep spiritual meaning. It's not just something where God extracts money from us. We give our tenth of God's tithe. And it shows that we are a part of. Of him, his portion. And it shows, you know what? You value your money, don't you? It isn't always easy when it's hard to pay the bills to give that tenth, is it? But it shows God that you are willing to part with that which is dear to you to be a part of him. And if you are doing the other things that he requires of you, not just tithing, but Mormons do that. But if you're doing the other things as well, it makes you a part of him. It makes you the apple of his eye. It makes you part of his portion, his tithe of the people that he has saved for himself. And those are the ones he is talking about here, those he gathers together. They are his witnesses. Now, there may be two that travel the earth to give a message. But it is those who are gathered together in Zion, where that's where he says to come. Zion and Jerusalem. That are a witness to the world of how to live. How to live by every word of God. How to conduct peaceful lives with security within the blessing of God. That is why he is drawing them all together. Now he could, could he not, as was suggested back in the 60s, put a little plastic bubble over people all over the earth and protect them from bombs and swords. Yes, he could. He can do anything. But that's not what he has chosen to do. He has chosen to gather people to a specific location, the original, 
Zion and Jerusalem and use them as a witness to the world and he will be a wall of fire and a defense around them and protect them so that they can fulfill his laws and live his way of life together as a witness to the world. Giving, serving, loving. That's all Herbert Armstrong said, isn't it? Isn't that what this is all about? Are we not being called now not only to set an example maybe for the neighbors in the community around us around the world, but now he is going to call his people together in one place and they are going to be one example putting the light of their lives together in one spot that is protected and that the world cannot avoid, even though they will try. And the message will change. The example of people living the way of give rather than get will be given, and they are truly the witnesses, as he says here, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the eternal, and beside me there is no Savior. Verse 12, I have declared and have saved his people, gathered them together, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. We are to put our idols away. All of our false gods have to be removed. And then we become true witnesses, but the true God is God. And we will be living, giving, caring, and sharing as God has intended all along. Then the message will change. Because two then, because the world has to have two witnesses, will go around the world, proceeding from Zion and Jerusalem, maybe preaching from there. It says the word will go out from there. But it seems that they will be traveling to all the world as a witness. Of what? Of the millennium. As a witness of how people will live when the whole world obeys God. And they'll be able to say, Herbert Armstrong came to your leaders. He was on radio and TV and so was his son for decades. Telling you ought to give instead of get and you didn't listen. Now, here's some people that are living that way, and they are in peace and happiness and security and in plenty, and you are starving, and you have the sword after you, and famine and pestilence. And they will warn them that it is only going to get worse if you don't repent and do what those people in Zion and Jerusalem are doing. And it will be accompanied by flames of fire and with plagues in the manner of Mitzrayim and the captivity in, as we call it, Egypt. There will be consequences. You listen or terrible things will happen to you. There has to be that witness of God's people here. And then that witness has to be spread abroad. 
And when that is finished, the end will come. There is much that must be restored. Now, I've called it a microcosm of the millennium because all it really matters or amounts to is that people will have become converted, that is, changed. They will live together in love. And in fact, that is the test of whether we are his disciples or not. If we can live together in love. If we are not now doing that, we need to get it right. We need to fix it. We need to live together in peace. Now, I think this gathering is going to happen very soon. And it is going to require us to live together in love with people that we do not know. There will probably have to be the gift of tongues that we might clearly understand one another, one language. There will have to be the loving melding of different backgrounds and cultures, of people who have lived differently and have different customs in life. I don't think it will be such an automatic, easy blending. But you know what? If attitudes are right, if attitudes are of give and serve and help, it won't be any problem, or not an insurmountable problem. It will be able to be accomplished. And when people are selfish and don't want to give of their time and their energy, then, or of themselves, then it becomes very difficult to live together in peace. And people tend to pull away if they don't like the way things are. And not to get along and split and divide. And that's what's been happening in the church since Herbert Armstrong died. And it continues apace. But when God gathers those people together, they're going to be people of a certain type of attitude who are teachable and willing and wanting to learn and wanting to cooperate with one another. And then it will happen. And they will live together in peace. So all we're doing is trying to do a better job of what we were supposed to do in Worldwide. And it's supposed to be a good enough example that God can cause his ministry to point to it and say, that's the way it ought to be. Won't that be a fantastic thing if we can be a part of that? And it's a picture then of the millennium where everyone across the face of the earth will live under the protection of God in peace and in security. So God is moving forward this, with this thing in the end time work. It isn't a tragedy that, Herbert, that the Worldwide Church of God came apart. It's part of the plan of God that God said what happened thousands of years ago. And now we have lived almost through it. And we are called upon to fix it with God's help. And we're supposed to fix it to the point that it can be said of us, that's the way the millennium will be. Second Timothy 3, what time is it getting to be? 
I'll carry on just a little bit longer here. Second Timothy 3. Let's understand where we are living today. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. If you don't think there's peril today, look at wars and rumors of war around the earth. They're saying now about 60,000 people have died in Syria in the last months. Look at how many have died in Iraq and in Ghana and Somalia and, you know, on and on and on it goes. These are perilous times. We're getting all kinds of weird murders now in this country. And people demon-possessed eating the face of other people who are still alive. Partly, apparently, because of some drugs that they are taking in. But it's just getting where there's peril everywhere. Why? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Does that pretty well describe our country today? Does that pretty well describe the church overall today? Without natural affection, gay, truce breakers don't keep their word, false accusers, accusing people of all kinds of things, and they don't even know what they're talking about, incontinent, that is, unable to control themselves, we use it in terms of adult diapers, but it means mind and emotional control as well, fierce, mean, nasty, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, doing things behind the back. We've talked about it in terms of our nation, that they needed to be hung if they were traitors or treacherous in that sense. But it happens in the church too. Heady, that is, their own mind, their own thoughts, their own way of doing things. Big-headed, in other words, proud, vain. High-minded, thinking highly of themselves and their own opinions. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Just want to have fun. Don't want to do the work that's required to be spiritual, but let's have fun. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Do not be around people that are like that. What is he saying here? He's saying that the way of get will prevail, that selfishness will be the clear, main approach of human beings, as opposed to the way of give. Christ said there in John 13:35, "By this will men know that you are my, know that you are my disciples because you love one another." The give instead of the get. First Corinthians 13 goes through it. Very clear that this is what Armstrong was talking about. He was using simple terms, give and get. He didn't get the Bible out. He didn't read this to them. This is for a church to hear, not for the world to hear. He put it in a way they might understand. But even in understanding, they rejected it. 
So now it has to get stronger. But he says, though I speak with the tongues of men, have many languages, and I do believe God is going to have to give the gift of tongues here at the end so that all people can understand. That will be true of the faithful remnant at the end. And it just means languages, not gibberish. I speak with the languages of men and of angels. Even understand what the angels are saying. Maybe they have their own language. And don't have love. I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Just a, a noise that goes on. I think the church will have that. But that is not the test of our discipleship. That's do we love one another. And that's in actuality, not in Greek words. I'm not a Greek scholar. I do know a few Greek words. I learned them 50, 60 years ago. But it's the action, not the words, that is important. I speak English, frankly. Thank you. Same thing. The love of God and how he treats enemies and how we should treat our enemies and our friends. We can put it in English. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and don't have love, I'm nothing. I think, brethren, frankly, we understand as much about prophecy as anybody on the face of the earth does, about true prophecy and what God intends and why he wrote prophecy. It's not about dates. It's about conduct. It's about the giving way of life and serving and loving. Otherwise, we'll go into captivity and slaughter if we don't live by every word of God. It's very simple. The intricacies of exactly when, who's going to do to what is not the important part of it. It's do we love one another and how do we go about it? Do we love one another to stick to get together when things get rough? You know, they talk about fair-weather sailors. long as the seas are smooth and the sun's shining, it's nice to be on board ship. But when the waves get high and tempestuous, some sailors get off at the first available port. God does not want fair-weather sailors. He's looking for those who can stand trial, trouble, tribulation, errors and faults in others, Overlook them and love anyway. That's what he's looking for. So if we could do all these miracles and understand all prophecy, if we don't love one another and respond properly to one another, we're nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned even, and don't have love, it profits me nothing. It's all vanity. You know, people do give in vanity. They like to give so that they look good and feel good about themselves. Is it the true love of God where they would give to an enemy the same thing or is it to their friends or people they like? There's human love and emotion that we naturally have that comes easily to someone that we truly like. But if we don't like them, if we feel that they're an enemy... If their personality rubs us the wrong way, then we have trouble loving them. Then we talk behind their back. Then we stab them. Then we put them down. 
Then we try to convince others how they are in error or whatever it is that our attitude is toward them. And when we do that, we are not showing godly love. Christ used the example of the man that had fallen to the robbers and said, Who is my neighbor? Anybody that is hurting and in need, whether you like them or not, is our neighbor. The whole world is our neighbor. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone might have salvation ultimately, if at all possible. If we're nice to the ones we love, we have human love. If we're nice to people we don't like, we have trouble getting along with, and we show them love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness anyway, then we're showing godly love. Because that isn't natural to us. That's a different kind of love entirely. In Greek, English, or Swahili, it doesn't matter. It's how do we treat those that we don't like or have problems with. Where was I here? Do we do it for vanity's sake? So that we can let our right hand know what our left hand is doing? So we can feel righteous about ourselves or we do it because the Spirit of God is pouring through us and we want to help anywhere we can with anyone we can. That's what God is after. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is willing to suffer for a long, long time. To stay with it, not to give up on somebody, but to suffer and suffer is suffering, isn't it? To suffer long. To be willing to take things for a long time. Love doesn't envy the love of God, but human nature is full of envy, isn't it? Jealousy. Love vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, doesn't think more highly of itself than it ought to think. But you know, if you have an opinion that's different than somebody else's, then your opinion is automatically better than theirs, because why? Because it's yours. doesn't matter whether it truly has merit or not, but it's our vanity, our self-direction, that causes us to think our way of doing things is better than someone else's way of doing things. How do you know? There are more, one than, are more ways to skin a cat than one. There truly are. There are many ways of doing a particular job that needs done. There are many ways of showing love. And different people will do it in different ways. But if they're motivated by the Spirit of God, the result will be the same. They will help one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another and not pull away from one another. It does not behave itself in an improper way. Seeks not its own. In other words, the way of give instead of the way of I'll have my way. Is not easily provoked. Doesn't take offense. Doesn't get mad. Doesn't get angry. Somebody who has the love of God is very, very hard to get angry. 
Now, we have degrees of the amount of love, I suppose, that a person has. But if we're quick to anger, God says, don't be that way. He says, be slow to wrath. Slow. God does not generally get angry quickly. He's slow to wrath and he's quick to forgive. That's God's love. How do we fit here? Do we have work to do? I think so. I certainly do. Is not easily provoked, does not get angry, thinks no evil, does not dwell on evil at all, does not repeat evil, does not repeat what they even think might be evil, but that might not be because they don't have all the facts. The love of God does not allow for backbiting and stabbing and talking behind people's back and putting them down or saying they're not what they ought to be. There's no room for that in the love of God. It's just not part of God's approach. And we've all sinned in that and not had enough of the love of God. Thinks no evil. Think about that. Ponder that. See how that fits yourself. We all have to do that. What do we need to change? I just played three tapes on some of the elements that are required to overcome. Now here's the proof of the pudding right here. And we all fall short of the things he's writing here about the love of God. Rejoices not in iniquity. Doesn't point the finger and say, Aha, I knew you weren't righteous. I knew there was bad stuff about you. Or see somebody else fall, stumble, and comments on it, and they feel proud and good about themselves because they didn't commit that error. I wouldn't do that. Well, you did something else. You might not have done that. But then again, you might. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Rejoices in the truth. That, isn't a, that doesn't mean, I know the truth about you. That's not the attitude he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about at all here. But rejoices in the truth of God, the things that are true and right and good. <coughs> and you can find true and right and good in anyone in this room or hearing my voice today. You can. But as human beings, how often do we so easily go from... Somebody saying something good about somebody to saying something bad about them. That is so easy. In fact, it's so hard not to do. Because human beings rejoice in evil, not in good. So we don't look for the good in people, but boy, can we see the evil so readily. And then we can talk about it, and we can murmur about it, and we can get all upset about it. That's not the love of God. Bears all things. How much are we willing to bear with someone? How much? Or when do we give up on them? How easily we give up on them. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Now that doesn't mean that they believe all the evil they hear. It means that they believe in. They hope for. They 
undergird and strengthen and lift up and sharpen one another as opposed to putting one another down. These are all things that God intended us to improve upon when he blew the church apart. These are the the things that I can't preach to everybody else. These are the things that you and I need to do. Herbert Armstrong used to say, You're just not getting it, brethren. Sometimes he'd say, I don't think half of you are getting it. Sometimes he'd say, I don't think 10% of you are getting it. And you know what? He was right. And you know what? We're still not getting it. We're still stumbling and having problems with 1 Corinthians 13 up to here. All of us. Every one of us. And we must change that. We must come to have the true love of God through His Holy Spirit, not just human feelings for one another, or lack of them if we don't like each other for whatever reason. We have to be bigger than that. And the only way you're going to have that love of God is to pray that He fill you with His Spirit, that He fill you with His love. Because of ourselves, we do not have it. We have human emotion. We have human feelings for some people. We have to have it for everyone. And that can only come from God. You know what else it does? It never fails. It doesn't give up. It doesn't quit. But whether they be prophecies, they'll be fulfilled. Whether there be tongues, they will be ceased. There will only be one pure language. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot of facts in your head. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't have the whole story. We don't have the whole picture. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And he says, like children putting away their toys, we need to put away this human nature and our way of reacting and begin to react the way God reacts and to live the way he lives and to have his attitude. That's all Herbert Armstrong was trying to tell the world. Live to give instead of to get. That's all we're preaching today as we read all the words of God is live to give and serve not to get. And that is the witness that the end-time church must display to the world. We are willing to give and serve, not grasp and get and be greedy. And we can live in peace because we're not only willing to give of our food, we're willing to give of ourselves, we're willing to give of our attitudes, we're willing to give up our pride and vanity and ego to submit to someone else. Pray for the love of God. Because that love does not come naturally to any human being. It is somehow selfishly motivated. A child wanting his parent to love him, a parent wanting to love his child, friends loving friends. But those who despitefully persecute you and misuse you and you're supposed to love them, that one's a little harder. That one's a little harder. But we better stick with it and never fail. We need to get the message that Herbert Armstrong gave us all those years that we never got.
sorry, sad to say, we never got it. And he knew it. And we still haven't to the degree that we need to. And we're the only ones right here that can do something about it. Where this goes is limited. And there are sermons about love all through the church. And they're good sermons. But they don't do anything good unless they're applied. We can talk about it from now till the cows come home. And they're on good grass somewhere. Be a long time. We can keep talking about it. But unless we actually do something about it, it means nothing. Herbert Armstrong talked about it for decades. We've been talking about it here. About all we preach about here is love. Keep the commandments of God. Which means treating your neighbor as you want to be treated and treating God the way he wants to be treated. This is the love of God, that you keep his commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's so simple. So simple. But so hard. Because we're human. Well, we can preach about it and preach about it, but if we don't have it, it doesn't do any good. Well, Herbert Armstrong started it. He preached it. We shall continue it. And the remnant will. And the two witnesses will. And they'll use the gathering of the remnant of God's people as an example of how to live together in the love of God and peace. That is coming. And I want you and I to be part of it. I want us all to be there and be a part of what God is doing in His great work at the end time that is a witness to the whole world that He is God.